Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 291 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. And as always, I am excited that you're joining us today. You might have heard a few advertisements before and after our show in last couple weeks. I recently signed a contract with a podcast network that they will help me with having resources to offset the cost of production of this podcast and return they will run some ad before and after the show. I honestly was debating whether should I do it, should I not do it, but this is something I want to do long term. I've been airing weekly episodes in last six years. And I want to be able to do it for next 10 years. And this is a way that will help me to get more resources. So I'll be able to be consistent with producing this weekly episode. In today's conversation, we're going to talk about treatments of erectile dysfunction. We're going to talk about some of our favorite sex toy and sex tech material for men. And we're going to talk about some of the sexual challenges that men experience after cancer. But before I tell you all about that, I want to remind you that in next few weeks, I'm hosting a live workshop to support those of you that want to learn more about how to tackle performance anxiety, how can you gain control over your ejaculation without medication. I'm going to talk about five building blocks for getting and maintaining a firm erection. And more importantly, I teach I will teach you seven techniques to drive your partner's wild because it's all about experiencing pleasure. And after talking to hundreds of women, I'll, I'll be able to help you what really matter in the bedroom. If you want to show up anonymous, you can 100% do that, or you can just watch the replay of the workshop if that's something that you prefer. You will have the opportunity to, to ask your question during the workshop, or you can send it to us beforehand. I'll make sure I'll answer 100% of the questions I receive. Today, we're going to talk about erectile dysfunction. My colleague, Dr. Lauren Walker, is my guest today. Lauren published 50 peer-reviewed articles about sexual health and many of her articles about treatments of erectile dysfunctions. And today, we're going to talk about erectile dysfunction and cancer survivors. But all of the techniques we're talking about, it's applicable for anyone who want to be able to have experience firmer erection, being able to show up more confident in the bedroom. So you want to make sure you're listening to this conversation, even if you or no one that you know it or experience cancer, because all the techniques we're talking about, I bet that it, it is something that you can apply as well. Dr. Lauren Walker is a registered clinical psychologist in Alberta, Canada, specializing in sexuality and intimate relationships. Her passion is working with couples and individuals who are interested in enhancing their intimate relationship and sexual lives and with people who are experiencing sexual difficulties. In 2019, she was recognized as one of Calgary's top 
40 Under 40 for her innovative work in developing program for cancer patients to manage sexual side effect of treatment. She has written 50 peer-reviewed articles on psychosocial and sexual adaptation to cancer. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Lauren Walker. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to welcome Dr. Lauren Walker. Lauren, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. This is a, such an interesting topic. We talked about cancer and women in the past, and it's very unique to have a researcher like yours that you've published many articles about this, journal articles, and also a clinician. So I'm very excited for our conversation, and I know it will help many couples and penis owners and men in in their journey. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about how did you get interested in doing this type of research? Absolutely. So I am trained as a general psychologist, but through the course of getting research experience throughout my undergrad and my master's education, encouraged to find a research supervisor. And I ended up working with someone at the cancer center, more so out of convenience and opportunity, certainly had some exposure to cancer within my family. My grandfather passed away from prostate cancer. So I had some interest in that, but certainly started out more so as a opportunity that just seemed to work well. And I actually started working more generally with cancer survivors who were going through treatment and experiencing distress related to that treatment. So my very first study that I ran was actually with ovarian cancer survivors who were participating in a supportive expressive group therapy program. But over the years, I ended up learning that I'm quite drawn to working with people who are kind of in the margins, people who have issues that are not necessarily getting well addressed. And we know that sexuality is one of those issues. So I was naturally drawn to that area. Beautiful. What an interesting journey. And I'm so sorry for the loss that that you had with your grandfather. And I know you published multiple journal articles about prostate cancer survivors, the impact on the relationship, different types of treatment. So tell us what were some of those findings and those research? So I learned when working with particularly prostate cancer survivors that one of the most devastating side effects long term from their treatment is a negative impact on sexuality. So most of the men or people that go through prostate cancer treatment will end up struggling with some degree of erectile dysfunction. That might be temporary, but the journey toward recovering erections is a long and challenging one. And so as a psychologist, I found that I was often working alongside the medical practitioners who were prescribing medications to help these men, but finding that many of them were actually not carrying on with their treatment or struggling to implement their treatment. And so as a psychologist, we know we're working with people to try to help them change their behaviors and sustain those behaviors. And so I became quite interested in why is it that people struggle to carry on taking medication for erections or to carry on maintaining a sexual relationship when there are challenges? So I certainly started in the area of kind of supporting the members of the medical team, but also then researching and learning from the patients themselves about what are the challenges and struggles they're experiencing and what are the things that they can do to actually sustain a satisfying sexual relationship, even if it comes with its challenges. So one of the things that I've really focused on is working with couples to explore ways to maintain a sexual relationship, even when erections aren't reliable. 
So certainly we know there are oral medications, there are vacuum pumps, there are injectable medications to help improve the quality of erections. But we know that these are not always reliable and not always effective particularly in the early stages of recovery from surgery. And so we need to work on how to support couples to maintain sexual relationships that maybe don't require reliable erections. So Naz, you're familiar with this. I'm sure you know all about counseling people about the many ways in which they can maintain a sexual relationship and not necessarily just focusing on intercourse. I think that's such an important point. I have few questions we can do for a follow-up. I think one thing is at times a couple, the partner feels hurt. Sometimes they feel I'm not desirable. I'm not attracted. That's why our partner is not getting an erection. Not maybe initially right after the procedure, but within a few months, because many people have been struggle, at least based on my experience for years. How, how did you help the partners navigate that? Was that part of the research study or that's something that you do with couples? Absolutely. So I think one of the first problems is that we expect this is going to be a speedy recovery. So, you know, six, eight weeks out from your surgery, you're feeling really good. You're back to the gym. You're doing all your regular activities and people assume everything else should be falling into place too. And that's not the case with erectile function. We tend to see that by a year out from treatment, only 10% of men will have their erections back. So we're looking at more like a two, three, four year recovery period for erectile function to return. So once people have a better understanding of that realistic time frame, they're often less likely to personalize it, to assume that it's something wrong with them, that their partner's no longer attracted to them. So I really do a lot of reinforcement at that front end, educating this is a physiological response. This is damage to nerves, damage to vascular function. And your partner is very much interested and wants you. Their body is just not going to be able to perform or accommodate in the way that it used to. So I find the education on the front end, even before surgery, if possible, is really, really important for that recovery, both for the partner and for the patient. Absolutely. And kind of knowing what to expect, right? That sometimes we other part of our body, we're recovering, we're feeling good. And kind of like being given in that situation of having kind of performance challenges, that can be very disappointing to both partners. And it's my experience that not all of the uh, solutions out there are created equal. I think some of my clients, they have better experiences. And a big part of it, it's kind of individualized, depending on the person's physiology, the kind of how advanced was the kind of cancer and surgery and all of those things. But it's interesting, I had mixed results with pumping. What's been your experience with clients about that? So as we know, there's lots of different methods to try to restore erections. Some will work for some patients, some will not. And some will work the longer out from their treatment if it's within about a two-year time frame. So I find that particularly your question there about using a vacuum erection device or a pump, I tend to tell people that it will improve your natural function. So if you have some degree of erectile response, maybe you're starting to notice about a 30%, 40% erection starting to come back but it's still not sufficient to be able to have penetrative activity, then a pump is likely going to work quite well for you because it might improve that erection maybe another 30% or so. Kind of gets you over that threshold to be able to to have it rigid enough to do certain kinds of activity. 
But if you have no erectile function right now, you've maybe got zero, 10%, it's not going to improve that very much. So it needs something to start with, and then it'll improve it more. So I tend to tell people the pump, if what your expectation is, is that I'm going to have an erection strong enough for penetrative activity, probably not until you have some good response naturally without any other medications or assistance. But that is important because it's really about what is your objective? Are you trying to have rigidity? Are you trying to have an erection for sexual stimulation and play? Or are you trying to improve blood flow to try to preserve erectile function, to promote nerve recovery? And that is actually more of a goal that we call penile rehabilitation. So if you are, let's say, finished surgery or radiation treatment, and you want to try to do everything you can to help preserve the health of your penis and preserve function, then you can use the pump more like a physiotherapy. So you're pumping up, you're pulling blood into the penis, you're letting that go. And that's not necessarily with an objective of trying to have rigidity and sexual activity. So both are important, but also really important that you understand what your goals are and why you're doing it so that you're not disappointed if you don't end up with that rigidity that you were hoping for. You know, what's interesting that sometimes when we are in these challenging situations and we're redefining our sexual sexual activity with our partner, it can actually open the door for us to explore different things. If you are in this process of rehabilitation and you realize that like your partner might enjoy other kind of activity does not require erect penis, then that if when you when and if you have that kind of like right to the place of having a more firm erection, but you have other options as well. I think just a matter of redefining and kind of focusing what is the agenda there? What is it important for you within your relationship? I couldn't agree more. We do find that there are different pathways that patients and couples take through the adaptation process. And some of them do take more of what we call a sexual renegotiation approach, where they say, you know what, intercourse might have been something we really enjoyed before, but it's not available to us right now. It may be again in the future. But let's focus on all the other ways that we can enjoy pleasure and touch and satisfying each other and remembering that for uh, the person with the penis, that even if it's not erect, they can still experience sexual pleasure and in many cases, orgasm. It just means that the kind of stimulation that you're engaging in is going to look a little different than it did before. So when we see that kind of, we call sexual flexibility, right? That openness to say, you know, what's my goal here? Is it about penetrating or is it about enjoying myself and enjoying my partner? And couples who are able to see that as their outcome are often, you know, much more successful in that process of adaptation. But it's a tricky one because you've spent your whole life experiencing an erection whenever you're having a sexual response. And when that's missing, it can be quite devastating for people. It can be a reminder of what they've lost. It can be really sad and induce grief. And for many, it can be frustrating or even a sense of like a loss of their masculinity. And so the more that we, you know, ascribe to that kind of social conditioning that men or people with penises need to have erections on demand at all times, then the, the trickier it gets to navigate that. And so that's where we come in really as therapists, as being able to support people in redefining, renegotiating, and maybe challenging some of those unhelpful beliefs that are kind of keeping us stuck. 
Absolutely. And I think many people, they just don't have the information about that. If you don't have an erection, many people are able to kind of reach orgasm and experience orgasm. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I love that the point that you made about this a sexual script, like you were growing up with the script of sex start with an erection and ends with ejaculate, male ejaculation based on what we see. And then that's not sometimes not available or that's some for some people is not exciting anymore. I'm kind of thinking about if the goal is pleasure, how can we uh, cultivate that in our relationship? So I think that's that's also a very can be a very helpful conversation to have. Well, tell us when people, for example, with the prostate cancer, they're going through the treatment, what can they expect? And what, what are some of the common sexual challenges they have on different stages? Mm-hmm. So what we typically find the most commonly reported sexual effect is erectile difficulty. But that's largely what people focus on in the literature and what people focus on in terms of pairing for treatment. But we do tend to see a number of other effects. So some people do report reduced sensation, difficulties experiencing orgasm, climacteria, which is a condition where urination happens at the point of orgasm. Everyone who will have had surgery is likely to have a lack of ejaculate when they do have their orgasm experience. So one of the important things is recognizing that, yes, you can still have an orgasm, even though there is no ejaculate attached to that orgasm. And that might be the first time for this individual to experience that. Those are two separate phenomenon. Some people can experience some pain or discomfort, but these are all things that we can work to help support patients to adapt to. I just find that the literature largely focuses on erectile dysfunction and kind of forgets that there are other experiences that people might be struggling with uh, in their recovery process as well. Well, what would be the, I hear at times about the pain part of it. What would be the solution for that? Or what are some of the available treatment for that? So certainly I suggest that anyone who's experiencing pain have a, a workup with their physician. There are sometimes medication management options. And as well, I'm always a big fan of referring to pelvic floor physiotherapy. They just are so skilled when it comes to issues with relation to the pelvis and also in pain management. So sometimes there's some treatment from a physio perspective that can be helpful. Other strategies relate to working with chronic pain. We know that mindfulness meditation is a very helpful strategy for helping people work with pain that interferes with sexual experiences and recognizing as well that for many people, they may choose to continue to engage in an experience a sexual experience that brings them pleasure, even if there is some degree of pain. So what I find is tricky is that often the partners struggle to engage when they know that the prostate patient is experiencing pain, but many times the patient is fine with carrying on with their activity. And so a really important thing is to have those conversations up front and say, will you let me know if it's too much or if you don't want to proceed in this way or that way? And then to trust that they will let you know, because that's the other thing is that the partners are often you know, reading a facial expression or they're afraid they're going to cause pain and they don't want to. So they may avoid sex altogether. And that might not be what the patient wants. Absolutely. Having this kind of open communication about it, it's very important. And I think they're thinking about kind of like following your partner's lead. It's, it's very helpful. 
Is it common for the survivors to kind of experience the pain at the time of erection or it's more of an ejaculation and after ejaculation? It can be all of the above. So I do find that for some who are starting to get those erections back after a long period of not having them, there can be some pain because it's a, it's a new experience to get those erections back. For some, it might be related to particular kinds of treatment. So you might be familiar with injection therapy. I find the vast majority of people tell me it's not the injection that causes them pain, but sometimes that those initial erections that they're getting when they haven't had erections for a long time can be painful. So sort of, sort of a discomfort or a throbbing or aching. But many of that, for those people, that does go away the more erections that they're getting and the more experience they're getting with that treatment. And for others, it might be pain related to the orgasm itself. And for some, that might be muscular related. Again, I think sometimes like if you go to the gym and you work really hard and you haven't for a while, you end up with that pain afterwards. And so that's where I think the physiotherapy piece can be really important. I agree with you. And I think one thing that's interesting, when I talk to my client about injections, I refer them to a urologist for that, they they get so scared. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> or like you're talking about injections. But I hear that most of the time, the injection, as you mentioned, is not painful at all. So, and it can be very helpful, but absolutely it makes sense. And if you haven't kind of like practiced that muscle for a while, then it's going to be mm-hmm. some getting adjustment and kind of like practicing that, as we mentioned, like kind of practicing using that muscle, like if you were going to the gym. Exactly. And I trust what my patients tell me. I myself don't have experience <laughs> using injections in a penis. And I can understand that, you know, that wrapping your head around that can be tricky, But for those who have decided to go for it, overwhelmingly, the feedback I have is that it wasn't nearly as scary as they thought that was. It was very reliable and they were really glad they tried it. But I will say that with the injection therapy, it is something that requires lots of persistence. And so many people go in thinking, oh, I'll just take this medication and it'll work well and it'll be fine. But really, any of these kinds of treatments take some modification, some persistence when challenges come up, using them again, trying them again if they didn't work, or changing dosages. So I find that that journey to sexual recovery after prostate cancer treatment is one that does require lots of kind of troubleshooting, coming back, communicating, and trying again. Whereas when people assume, oh, I could just take a pill and I'll be fine, and it doesn't work, it can be really devastating. So going in with that sort of open mind, yeah, it may work, it may not. And if it doesn't, I've got a number of other things that I'm going to tweak or change and try again so that people don't give up and feel discouraged after an early perceived failure. Let's call it a perceived failure because really these aren't failures. We expect (laughs) that it's going to be kind of an up and down journey. Absolutely. And again, the the more you kind of set your mindset of experimenting with this, the goal is pleasure. You will have more successful experiences and less pressure. Like even if if you have no, even no surgeries, you're going in with the idea that I have to have hard, uh, firm erection that can be very anxiety provoking. And I, I can almost guarantee that that will bring down the quality of your experience, even if you have no kind of like surgeries or no setbacks. At times, my clients, they go for implants. At what point do you recommend that? So an implant is a a very reliable solution, but it's one in which after you've had an implant, you can't go back. 
So you can't change your mind later and say, you know what, I want my implant removed. Let's see if those medications work now. So you have to be sure that once you've gone for your surgery to have an implant put in place, that that's, that's what it's going to be for you. That's that pathway. So I typically tell people to wait that three or four year period to determine whether or not they're going to have any natural recovery of their erections before making a decision for something that is is a permanent change in their physiology. I agree with you. Kind of like uh, experiment different ways. And as you mentioned, working with physical therapists, working with a sex therapist, kind of like experimenting different ways. And then kind of maybe there's nothing wrong if you want to do an implant, but kind of like uh, try to examine different options. Is how I know one of the controversial things that I hear is that people feel kind of implant, you're going to get an erection, but the pleasure is not going to be as much. I wonder part of it could be a subjective experience, but also I wonder if it's part of kind of physiology involved. What's been your experience talking to clients? Mm-hmm. So I worked very closely with a surgeon who has done these procedures and the way he describes how they are done is a little bit crass, but basically he describes hollowing out all of the tissue inside the penis. So that erectile spongy tissue that fills with blood to create an erection is all removed to make room for this implant. And there are different kinds of implants, but many of them are um, kind of like a rod shape that then are filled with saline. So they create that rigidity. But the penis is then changed in terms of the tissues that are inside it. Um, Many men describe, yes, there's rigidity there, but not fullness in the same way that their pleasure or sensation is impacted. The glands or the head of the penis can be impacted as well. And so if you're really focused on how do I get that firmness back so that I can get back to penetrative activity, but maybe there is a downside that things might not feel as, as sensitive as they did before. Again, I think it really comes down to what your objective is. Is it all about getting back to penetration or is it about pleasure and enjoyment? And maybe that means a different pathway then, not necessarily one that will allow you penetration or maybe not right away. It might take a few years to get there. Well, I, I agree with you. And I think it's helpful to think about your recovery in stages in, in all kind of like in mind, body and sexual health. And kind of thinking about this is my goal for the first stage. And, and you know, this is your specialty, correct me if I'm wrong, but like in this for the first uh, stage, this is what I'm, my goal is maybe for the first first year after surgery, my sexual health, and then second year and third year. So you know that you're setting your expectation. If things are disappointing, it doesn't mean that it's going to remain that way, kind of like practicing radical acceptance and see what comes next. But you're right that I believe that it's like you get to choose what kind of experiences you have. It might not be, uh, unfortunately, 100% what you want, but you will have an option as far as kind of having pleasure for sure and having different types of experiences. Absolutely. So if you take that kind of staged model, I think that first year should really be about penile rehabilitation doing everything you can to help promote those tissues recovering and those nerves recovering. And so that means engaging in some degree of sexual activity, whether that's masturbation or partnered activity, but setting aside that expectation that you're going to have very much rigidity. Engaging in things like using a vacuum pump, or some people do take oral medications, even if they don't seem to work to create erections, there's some theory that it could help with nerve regeneration. 
or maybe it is using injections early as a way to help promote that recovery. There is some evidence there for that. So again, I think there's the penile rehab focus. How do we, you know, come out of the gates here with your best foot forward to make sure that you have a really good option for recovery? Because if you don't and you just sit and say, you know what, I'll just wait two, three years and I'll just see what happens then you miss this opportunity to engage in that kind of physiotherapy to get things going. You also, if you're partnered and you're waiting two or three years to engage in sexual activity, you know, your partner's sort of left in the dust and two to three years from now, your partner might say, I don't care anymore. (laughs) So you sort of miss that opportunity. And I find it really one of the challenges as a therapist is helping get couples back into sex when they haven't been doing it for a really long time. Six months, okay, sure. A year, okay, sure. Three, four years of not having sex, it's hard to get them back into it because it often feels awkward. The communication skills are gone. They're out of practice. They don't know where to begin. So I would suggest carrying on with activity in any format because it allows you to keep communicating and keep it relevant and remember that this is something fun we do together, even if it looks different than it did before. Such a great advice because you want to make sure that uh, the relationship, the erotic charge of the relationship will remain. Because if you are, especially with cancer, which is unfortunately, it's one of, for some people, it's very serious. The relationship can turn to the caregiver, patient, and that is not sexy. Or you can be at the place of being a roommate and all of a sudden you are as hard because you want to have sex with a relative. Like, you know, it's just like, yeah. it's, I cannot shift my mindset. That's going to be challenging. So having some kind of erotic exchange in the relationship, I think it's very healthy for all couples, but especially if you are going through a challenging time, whether physically or kind of like psychologically. I'm glad you brought up that change in role. There's even some discussion in the literature about whether caregiver is actually a helpful term to use to describe partners who indeed are caring for the patient, but does it actually kind of erode that intimacy or that erotic bond that a couple has when you are viewed as a caregiver? It's not appropriate for a caregiver to be attracted to the person they're caring for. That would be a problem if you were a nurse or a healthcare provider. And so we are, you know, met with this challenge of then how do we wrap our heads around that as, as couples? If I'm caring for my partner and I'm helping them do, you know, very vulnerable things like using the toilet or things like that, that it's also really challenging to hold that and hold erotic energy and attraction for them. So I'm a fan of just referring to partners. (laughs) And yes, there may be a caregiving role within that, but not necessarily taking on that identity as caregiver. I love that because I think language is very powerful and what you use with your partner and how you think it can really impact the dynamic. So one other thing that was very interesting and your website, I think I saw that you curate sex tech material for, for people. Is that part of the things that you have? I was like, oh, great. This is very interesting. And for penis owners, at times, I, have, I, I hear from them that they don't know what's out there. What are some of the recommendations you have around that? Oh, I'm glad you asked about that. There's so much social conditioning that toys or technology is for women or for people who have vulvas. We think about vibrators, 
you know, that's naturally where we go. But these things, these tools can be extremely helpful for people with penises. Vibration is a fantastic tool. If you've experienced any reduction in sensitivity, you may just need something a little bit more intense to kind of get you to that threshold to be able to have orgasms. If you're engaging in activity with a non-erect penis, a toy is a fantastic way to go to help assist with that extra stimulation. So there are a number of different vibrators that are available that are handheld. Some of them are kind of cylindrical shaped, can be placed around the penis to assist with masturbation. Others can be placed between two partners who are then engaging in genital on genital activity, moving and grinding against each other with a vibrator that's just fit between those two bodies. Those are fantastic. Others are constriction ring based. So they're placed around the base of the penis and they can have vibration in them and obviously aid for either partner experiencing that contact with the vibration. So those are some really good options. And a constriction ring can be really helpful too if you're experiencing difficulty maintaining an erection. So let's say you can get a pretty decent erection on your own, but then it doesn't last as long and it starts to go away. So constriction rings are also a really great option there. There is another kind of product that could be really helpful. And in our research, we tend to refer to it as an external penile prosthetic. If you've encountered the sex toy world before, you might call this a strap-on dildo. Okay. Oh, I love the name. I was like, oh, what is that? I exactly know what is that. Okay. (laughs) They do need to be marketed differently. Mm -hmm. If you think about a strap-on, you often think about lesbian sex, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And if you're a 65-year-old cisgender male heterosexual male, Mm -hmm. you're not really thinking, how could I use that product? Mm -hmm. So if you think about it more like a prosthetic, this is an external prosthetic that I can use because my penis is not able to become rigid. Mm -hmm. Obviously wearing it, you can facilitate penetration to your partner, but many of my patients will say, well, what's in it for me? (laughs) (laughs) And yes, it's good to be able to please a partner, but also you can buy harnesses that are designed for for people who have penises so that there's actually a opening in the harness so that the penis and the testicles can, or the scrotum can actually be externally accessed. So Mm -hmm. the harness isn't covering it up and making it hard to get to. So when you're wearing the strap-on or the harness and prosthetic, you can engage in penetrative activities with your partner, and then your partner can stimulate the penis. Mm. A penis that is warm and wet and tactilely stimulated does not care where it is. (laughs) It feels very much like you're engaging in the same rhythmic motion that you did when you were engaging in intercourse, and you have that multi-sensory experience of my body is engaging in these movements. It feels like intercourse and the penis is being stimulated. I mean, we live in a world these days with virtual reality where all you have to do is put on a headset and you feel like you're standing on top of a building and you're going to, you know, take one step and fall 60 stories, (laughs) even though you're standing in your living room. So it's kind of similar to that, that you've got this multi-sensory integration and absolutely can experience sensations just like you're engaging in penetrative activity. Well, either you said so many things that I love. 
<laughs> first of all, the renaming it and rebranding it, right? That because I think like I work with lots of cisgender older men helping them there on their kind of like erectile challenges. And if you're telling them like you like wear a strap on, I even I can imagine they can get offended in a way, right? Mm-hmm. And, but I think it's really interesting to think about the extension of yourself and it's a uh, kind of like a way that you can in- enjoy it. And I can imagine there's a galaxy of options for role play with it there's just like so many options for creativity so i think it's, uh-huh. it's really good and it can kind of like help you and your partner if again penetration is something that's in your mind to reach that goal kind of going back to the conversation we had there's just not a one specific way to have sex it's just a matter of examining these things mm-hmm. how open I, this, again, this is the first time i'm hearing this i think it's so brilliant <laughs> I can't, you know about that? I can't take the credit. I work with a team of wonderful co-investigators and uh, absolutely something that I learned about and have been introducing to my patients. And I'm so glad to have learned of it. Well, tell me when you invite people to this intervention, what have been their reaction to it? So I've actually both clinically, and then we've also been conducting a research study where we've asked people, what do they think about it? Mm -hmm. And then as we introduce more information about how it's effective at producing pleasure for the wearer of the prosthetic Mm -hmm. as well, we see that their willingness to consider trying it increases. So a really important thing as you introduce it is to introduce it with the education about how it will be effective for both parties, not just the person receiving the penetration. Another thing I find is to introduce it as an option of many options and to say this may or may not be outside of your comfort zone, but you may want to know about it. Once they know about it, then they might revisit it later. They may not jump on it immediately. And I've also had couples who have tried it and said, ah, you know what, maybe it wasn't for me, but we had a good time trying it. We laughed and, you know, that was an intimate experience in and of itself. So I find the more that you can have an open mind about that experience, and in fact, one of the highest predictors of whether people are willing to try this is their sexual flexibility. So even as clinicians, maybe working with couples first to increase that flexibility. Um, And again, like you mentioned earlier, sexual scripts, sort of challenging some of those messaging around what should and shouldn't be, you know, considered for good sex. (laughs) So I find that's really important. But another factor, obviously, because it's a partnered activity is engaging the partner in the process. They need to make sure that they are comfortable with the use of of an external prosthetic that, you know, you can select size and shape and color, and they may have some preferences based on that as well. So I would say, you know, sometimes we're a little bit shy as therapists, "Ah, is this person going to be, you know, interested in this, but there's no harm in introducing it quite matter of factly. But one of the things you also said was that, you know, some people might even be offended based on how we introduce it. So language is really important, but also I think our level of enthusiasm is important. I see lots of young, often female sex therapy, sex positive people who are all about toys and really enthusiastic about toys, almost too enthusiastic for some of these older gentlemen. So I think we have to just introduce that these are an array of options and you can choose what works for you and not necessarily be too enthusiastic because we have to appreciate that it requires a shift in identity to be able to take on using something like this that for some might be really challenging and might be associated with lots of grief. So we do need to work through that carefully with our clients. That is 
excellent point because I think thankfully the younger populations, the younger generation, they grew up with kind of like normalized messaging around the sex toys, sex things, mm-hmm. and they think oh it's fun things, and they don't necessarily even think about it for someone that's have a dysfunction. They think about it. Okay, let's let's all explore these things, which is positive shift. But you're right, it's, it's important to meet your client where they are and kind of like bring them on this journey of kind of, okay, here, here are the options and you have the, this is an invitation. It's not something that you have to do, but I get that because sometimes I, I can see that like people get enthusiastic and that can be even create more resistance. Well, we want to hear more about you, Lauren. And it seems like you, you are involved with so many things. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how can people get a hold of you? Sure. So you're right. I do have a few different roles. I'm an adjunct associate professor at the University of Calgary. So I'm doing about half of my time. I'm spending developing interventions, studying the effects of cancer on sexuality and helping support people in the research realm and teaching, uh, educating, lecturing, things like that. The other part of my time I spend in a private practice. So I work with people with sexual concerns from all kinds of backgrounds, not necessarily just those with cancer. And then I also have a passion for knowledge translation. So you can find me on Instagram. And I'm sure we can post those details, but it's Dr. Lauren Walker. My mission there is to really take what we know about science-based information, evidence-based information, and translate that into real life practical suggestions for people. So it's just kind of a nice friendly reminder too of, oh yeah, am I staying on top of that? What else am I doing these days to enhance uh, and improve my sex life and relationships? Excellent. Thank you so much for being so generous with your information. People who are interested, they can find the information in the show notes. And I think you mentioned there's a book. What about the book? (laughs) (laughs) You're right. So we didn't talk too much about it today, but one of the common treatments for prostate cancer is androgen deprivation. So men are given a treatment that results in uh, obliteration of testosterone in the body, which obviously has very profound effects medically and in other ways, but particularly sexually. And so we have a educational program for prostate cancer patients to learn more about the effects of androgen deprivation and how to manage those. And in particular, there's a a rich array of information around sexual effects because many of these patients describe having no desire, which is different than men who have had surgery or radiation. They usually still experience desire to be sexual, but have sexual functional changes. So if you're interested in learning more about that, our website is www.lifeonadt.com. And our program has been operating in Canada for many years. We actually launched this past year in Europe. We're continually seeking support to be able to extend the program freely to patients across the world. So we're looking at offering the program eventually in the United States as well. So hopefully that'll be soon. Excellent. Excellent. So and I know you published a paper on that. I put a link on the uh, paper as well so people can check it out. They can, uh, Lauren has a breadth of information that it's hard to find, like find a part of it to talk about. So we can definitely have you back on the show. And thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful and gathered some good information about how you can have a great time with or without an erection because it's important to keep in mind that having an erection is not a must 
for people to be able to have a exciting experiences. But if you are struggling with erectile worries, controlling your climax, I have an invitation for you. So show up for my workshop. I'll teach you all the tools and strategies that I've been teaching my clients for a year to my clients for years. And I would be happy to share those with you. You have the option of taking the workshop completely anonymous and you can send your questions ahead of time. I'll make sure I will answer every single question that you'll send me ahead of time in the workshop. The link to signing for signing up for the workshop is in the show notes and I hope you'll consider attending it. Otherwise, I'll see you next week right here. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.